Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz bassist David Frizen. He's a very spiritual man that travels all over the globe in his early 70s, and he's chock full of wisdom. Some of those spots have included the Ukraine, and he has distinct memories of fan gratitude while in the USSR. Over a life dedicated to jazz, he's gigged with the finest in the business, and he has great stories. With cats like Larry Coryell, Randy Brecker, Joe Henderson, Billy Harper, his quintet, Stan Getz, and many more. He's actually recounts a great relationship that he had with a man known as a stormy person in jazz, Charlie Mingus. He had conversations with John Coltrane, and he talked about what he is happy about when he ponders his career so far. And there are many more savory realizations. So dig this interview, my friends. Go ahead. I'm, yeah. I'm yours. <laughs> Right on. Thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate okay. it. I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. I know you just came off of a trip and you're a busy man. Give me an idea of what has been going on lately. Well, I just came back from a tour in New Zealand and um, Australia. I was over there for a few weeks uh, playing concerts in New Zealand with two great uh, New, Ze- New Zealand musicians, jazz musicians, uh, Dixon Nacy on guitar and Ruben Bradley on on uh, drums and um, in Australia I played uh, two solo concerts in a cathedral at the Wangaretta Jazz Festival and then a duet festival with uh, pianist Mike Knock Uh, two of us had recorded um, together in New York in 1979 we hadn't played since then so it was reuniting It it was really great we had great audiences over there Earlier this uh, in in May and June of this year, I was in Europe again. Actually, I been, was in Europe three times this year, and in the Ukraine, the Czech Republic, playing concerts. Uh, bassist Glenn Moore, who's a um, the bassist for the group Organ, and I have been doing duet concerts. And in March of this year, uh, we were in Europe playing duets. Uh, I played piano. And, and Glenn would play bass, and then he'd play piano, and I'd play bass, and we'd play two basses. We've been doing this for almost 50 years together, off and on during that time. We've been friends that long and playing together, and we have a few albums out. Um, the latest one is a duet, just now came out on, on uh, Origin Records. It's called Bactrian, B-A-C-T-R-I-A-N, which is a two-humped camel and there and there's a song on the recording called the bactrian that glenn wrote and so that's uh that's a wonderful album it's just the best duet actually we've we've recorded yet there's another another new cd that just came out this year with my trio uh greg gobel on piano and, and charlie doggett on drums and then uh, that was recorded in three different uh venues um there's a, an incredible studio in Germany, in Osnabrück, Germany, out in the country, called Fatoria Musica. That is a converted farmhouse, three different buildings, uh, stone buildings, about 300 years old. They were totally all gutted and state-of-the-art uh, recording studios placed in there in, in a beautiful, 
beautiful nine-foot Steinway piano. And another building has, like, hotel rooms for artists. So when they come out there, they can stay there. They don't have to go into town to live at a hotel. They can stay right there at the farm and record at one of the great studios in the world. So we recorded there. We came back to Portland, Oregon after our uh, European tour. I'm talking about the trio now, the new trio CD, which is called Where the Light Falls. It's a double CD. We came back to Portland and recorded um, a concert at the Portland Piano Company on a nine-foot Fazioli, which is one of the great Italian grand pianos. That's one of the great grand pianos in the world. I think it's like a $250,000 instrument. Wow. And then we went down to the... um, a few weeks later, we were down at the new Performing Arts Center in Tempe, Arizona. And we were joined there by the great uh, jazz guitarist Larry Coons uh, from Los Angeles and recorded there. So the CD represents three different venues in the world and uh, all on great pianos. The piano down there in um, the Tempe, in Arizona, was on an instrument called the Ravenscroft. Ravenscroft, and it's uh, like the instrument we played on is a $300,000 plus instrument. There's only a few of them in the world right now. They're made specially for people who want to buy them, but just a great piano. So that album, this new album, Where the Light Falls, represents um, three incredible pianos. And then, like I say, the new album that Glenn Moore and I just recorded was recorded in Osnabrück, Germany, at that same studio on our nine-foot Steinway and then our two bases. So it's I've been busy doing that. And yeah. also in New Zealand, we recorded the trio. And there will probably be a CD coming out over there on uh, it's a, a record label called Rattle, R-A-T-T-L-E. But... Um, these two musicians in New Zealand were incredible, incredible people and uh, musicians. It was really a nice, nice tour. I'm doing yeah. nothing now. I teach up in Seattle, uh, Washington. I am up there two or three times a month teaching, and then I have some students here in uh, Portland. And nothing is planned until now, until <clears throat> February. Um, of 2016, where Glenn Moore and I will be doing the basis. Uh, we'll be doing some concerts and teaching in Arizona, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona area. And then I leave for Europe in March, doing solo concerts. I'll be teaching in London at the Guildhall School of Music. I'll come back in April. I'll go back over in the middle of May, I'll be doing some concerts in uh, the Ukraine, Czech Republic. And I come back in about the middle of June. And then at the end of the month, I leave uh, for Louisville, where I teach at the um, Jamie Ebersold uh, Jazz Camp every year. I'm back there. Till Very cool. The middle of July. And then that's that's the end of the traveling as far as I know it until November. November right on. Back in Europe then. So that's kind of what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I kind of want to take an offshoot off what you just said there. Going to the Ukraine, what is it like to perform in a place that's kind of going through their own level of historic turmoil? 
is it a real refreshing thing as a musician and for the audience to feel that music? My first time um, going to that area was in 1983. I had been going to Europe a lot, but uh, this time it was a group with Paul Horn. Uh, we had a quartet, and we went to the Soviet Union where we played uh, 18 concerts um, in a three-week period in Moscow, and at that time it was called Leningrad, and Vilnius and Kalis, which is part of Lithuania. And um, at that time it was part of the Soviet Union. There wasn't very much in the Soviet Union at that time, and, and pe people's wages were very minimal. I met some jazz musicians who were paid $200 a month by the state to play, and I met a heart surgeon in Vilnius who made the same amount. <laughs> wow. um, after almost every tune when we were in Moscow, we had audiences like... Uh, between four and eight thousand people every concert, yeah. and this these were concerts open to the public. Uh, they were actually the first uh, public concerts in fifty years uh, at that time in the Soviet Union, and people would come up with flowers after after almost every tune and just put them on the stage. And you knew these flowers cost money, and these people weren't ma making very much money. Um, as we would leave the stage, there were uh, the police and the guards were there, but you would see arms sticking through the barriers with little notes for us to take to friends in Canada and the U.S. and families in the U.S. if we would take notes and give it to them. You know, so this is kind of heart rendering, and and um, the music was very, very much appreciated. Uh, at that time, um, I talked to some Soviet people uh, who, in fact, the person that traveled with us, who was our MC, who had been in prison. And it was Willis Conover's voice of uh, America that saved his life. He was able to hear jazz while he was in prison. Wow. And so the freedom of that music and uh, and everything had just, he given him hope and encouragement in his life. So that was quite an amazing story to hear. And so, you know, third world countries, I've been in Poland a lot playing and uh, now in the, in the Ukraine for six years in a row, I'd been going teaching at a conservatory in Donetsk. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Donetsk, but um, it's under siege and, and out of the, million and a half people that live there, there's 250,000 left who who had um, fled the country or had been killed. This year I was in Kiev uh, teaching and playing a, a concert there. You know, there's a lot of upheaval over there, so I suspect, you know, this, this music is appreciated very, very, very much. The, the Ukrainians and Russians in general are very emotional people and and uh, wear, wear their hearts on their sleeve. They truly appreciate things that happen like this. I, that's the best way I can answer the question. Yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. It's Here in America, we have so much. There's so, so, so much. 
uh, over there is it's just not that way. So I think there might be more thankfulness and uh, appreciation for the music they see it in a in a deeper way, a deeper way coming out of a need, um, a place of having some hope in a broken world. Yeah. Here it might be for more entertainment and scrutinizing and intellectual. I, you don't get just because we have so much. There's yeah. not as many needs here. Yeah. Um, we, we we numb ourselves with a lot of materialistic things and, and television and programs and movies and parties. And <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so. Well, I'm going to go back to the beginning of your life in Tacoma, Washington. What was it about your childhood that started you on a path to music? Actually, when I was five years old, I was living in Spokane, Washington. And I remember playing with my little toy trucks on the carpet. And my sister had a friend who came over one day sat down at our upright piano in the living room and started playing uh, Boogie Woogie. And I stopped playing with my trucks and stared at this person, listened to the music. And from that point on, when he left, I went to the piano and tried to emulate what I had heard. And that was it. I never played with the toy trucks again. (laughs) It's when I was five years old, so... That's almost 70 years ago. I'm 73 now, so that's yeah. almost 70 years ago. So I've been I've been magnetized, gravitated towards that foundation of music since a very early age. It was piano in the beginning, and then uh, guitar, even wanted to play accordion. I didn't want to play accordion, but I wound up playing accordion. I told my dad I really wanted to play tenor saxophone. I had an uncle. My mom and my Uncle Boris and my Aunt Becky came from Smela, which is in the Ukraine, about two hours south of Kiev, a place that I actually visited this year. I went to my mom's birthplace and, and was taken around. Actually, my personal assistant, who lives in the Czech Republic, set this up for me because she's from the Ukraine. And understanding the uh, <laughs> the Ukrainian mind, she told me that I wanted to come to Smila, but I was this important jazz musician. And so they ran with this and did a invest. She had a friend at a television studio there in uh, Smila. And uh, they did an investigation on my family, on the history. Uh, They contacted the Cultural Arts uh, Museum in town, who also did another investigation. And when I came uh, with Natasha to Smilla, there was a television crew waiting for me, and I was escorted to the mayor's office. They made a big event of this, and I was kept busy for almost 12 hours. Wow. Saw my mom's birthplace, uh, the history of the town, the hospital she was born in, everything. So that was quite exciting. You know, that was, and I had a feeling that when I trailed off and shared this story with you, I might forget exactly where I was, and I did. <laughs> oh no, you answered it. I, you answered. It. We were talking about your childhood. 
And you actually went through a couple questions that were follow-ups. So this is what I want to ask the last one before we depart your childhood. What did you dream about being when you grew up? Was it always music, or was there another dream when you were a child? Um, I don't think I ever thought about that. I think my parents wanted me to be a dentist. But I was always, actually, I was attracted to, um, as a kid, to tennis. I I won in my area of Seattle singles and doubles, and I was practicing very, a lot. And then uh, when winter came, I wasn't able to play, and um, we weren't able to afford the uh, tennis club. So then I started bowling and became very, uh, really a good bowler, and I was in the traveling league in Seattle. I mean, at that time, I was packing about 190 average for a season, and that was, at that time, that was really good. Now, people are packing two thirties, forties, fifty averages. Uh, the the game is uh, really elevated in terms of technique and the the materials used and everything, but. So I I wanted to continue and be a bowler, professional bowler, I think, when I was in junior high, high school. I was really athletic. But then music was always in the back of my mind. And um, I think it's when I finally went to the Army in 1962-63. I was in Europe and um, met two other musicians I had been playing guitar at that time, and I picked up a bass one day in the service club, and I never played guitar again. I was yeah. hooked with the bass. It first first time I picked it up, that was it. I knew that was my instrument. And then for, I just became really immersed in the music, and that just I I knew that's what I was going to do at that time. Well, and obviously, thanks took off. You performed with a lot of people through the 60s, from Larry Coryell, Randy Brecker. Um, there's mentions of Miles and Coltrane and Bill Evans. I only I didn't play with them. I played opposite them at a great jazz club in Seattle called the Penthouse. Gotcha. All these, and I was in a group that would play opposite. I mean, Jimmy Garrison wanted me to come up and play with this group after I finished a set, and I says, "I'll let you play one tune, and then I'll come up and play with you." and and uh, his one tune lasted an hour and a half. <laughs> so I missed, I missed my chance to sit in with Coltrane, which would have been incredible. That's a regret. I'm sorry about that. It's funny, that Rufus Reed, great bassist, tells the same story it happened to him in um, Sacramento, where he lived, he came from. And he says, yeah, I had the exact same experience. I was asked to come up and sit in. I just finished my set, and I didn't take advantage of it. And his set lasts about an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Coltrane was known to play long sets. Yeah. Well, what were those early years like for you when you got out of the Army and you were getting into the jazz world? What were those experiences like of kind of cultivating your career and getting immersed in the jazz scene? What was it like? Um, just, you know, playing music with people and going through, you know, growing process and practicing, you know. Um, I was I was married and I was selling shoes and then practicing the bass as much as I could 
finally I quit selling shoes in Seattle and went full-time and was practicing, oh, about 10, 12 hours a day. Um, I lived in an apartment run by a man named um, Andrew Willison, who was an architect. And he came over on the boat with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. They had been partners. And uh, I could see by some of the pictures that Andrew Willison had in his architect studio that this, uh, I could see the influence of Frank Lloyd Wright. He, I, I needed privacy because we had uh, uh, David, our oldest now, um, was our first, of course, and and I needed privacy to practice. So I went down in the boiler room below uh, our apartment where I could be alone and practice. And um, Andrew Willardson, who was ninety in his mid nineties at that point, said to me listen, you can use my architect office. I don't use it anymore. You can go in there and practice. And that's where I saw these the influence of Frank Lloyd Wright from the pictures he had in his architect office. But I had this space uh, to practice, and he never charged me rent for that. That was He just gave it to me to, to use, to practice in. So I had access to that. So that was great. So I was practicing and playing a lot in Seattle, that's where I was playing with Coriel and met Randy Brecker. There's a friend of mine whose name is Jerry Hellman, who I actually produced a, a CD on Origin Records called Revelations. And it's music from the late 60s, early 70s of uh, Jerry and I playing together. Uh, he died a couple, a couple of years ago. And so I produced this uh, CD to kind of honor him and his music. He was a wonderful bassist and pianist, and um, Coriel had asked him many times to come back to New York and play with him. Um, Jerry just never wanted to leave Seattle or this area of the Northwest, but wrote some beautiful music, and so a lot of that music is is on this CD called Revelations. Um, Jerry had a coffee house called the Longlin. And um, the Longland is a Gaelic word. I think it's it's spelled double L A H N G A E L H Y N. It's called the Longland. And this is where Brecker and Roland Kirk, his name was Roland Kirk at that time, um, Coltrane, different people would always come to this club and sit in and play. Um, it was uh, open. 24 hours a day. <laughs> and to keep this coffee house running during normal hours on Fridays and Saturdays, um, Jerry and I taught ourselves piano, how to play piano. So um, I could play piano and Jerry would play bass, and I'd play bass and he'd play piano. And so we did that for a few years, and uh, that was a a very important place for me because I was able to really hone my craft there and and play a lot and with a lot of different musicians. So it was very a place that's very instrumental in my musical growth. And this was like in the um, 65, 66, 67 in that time frame. Yeah. And that's when I met Glenn Moore 
and Ralph Towner and and uh, Randy Brecker and, and a lot of these other uh, great musicians. Actually, when I was in Copenhagen, uh, after I got out of the army, I went back to Copenhagen to live because that's where I met my wife, Kim. That's where I also met Ted Kirsten, the great trumpet player. And when I went to New York in the 70s, Ted remembered me and was just forming a band at that time, of which he made me a part of. And so I had just arrived in New York, uh, stayed with a very, very good friend, Lou Marini, who I had met when I was teaching at the, uh, uh, I forget, it was the National Stage Band Clinics, and Mary McPartland was part of that, and and John Laporta and Gary Burton and um, uh, Lou Marini and his father. I don't know if you know the name Lou Marini. Blue Lou, he was one of the yeah. original players on the Saturday Night Live band. In fact, I was in his apartment the day he got the call to uh-huh. do the Saturday Night Live gig. Very cool. Yeah, I was new at that time. <laughs> and so I, I was back there with Lou. I stayed at his apartment. My first, very first day in New York, I had a gig with... Um, Lou, um, Larry Willis, who was part of Sweat, Blood, Sweat, and Tears at that time. I'm trying to think of, uh, forgot the drummer's name, but they were all uh, Lou Soloff on trumpet. They were all great musicians. So I very, I had just arrived in New York that day, and uh, Lou recommended me for this gig, and so I was working for my first time in New York. So then when I went back to New York again, I met Ted Kirsten and joined his band. That gave me a lot more visibility uh, on the jazzscape, you know, being in New York. And and uh, there was a jazz club called Boomers. Actually, with, 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 um, with Ted Kirsten, we were supposed to go into the Five Spot, which was a very famous jazz club at that time, and it closed before our gig started. So wow. I... Ted set up a gig for us at uh, the Tin Palace, which became a permanent residence for us while we were in New York to play at. And there was a journalist. Have you ever heard of Andrew Crouch? Yeah. And Stanley Crouch. Yeah. Stanley Crouch. The, he's a journalist who writes now. He's pretty well known. He was living as a young journalist above the club. And that's where I first met him and Larry, uh, uh, Gary Giddens, uh, was a young kid who just came into New York and started writing at that time. So I met a lot of those people and, and, um, I remember playing, I mentioned this, this jazz club boomers a moment ago, it no longer exists, but, um, it was, a, it was right near where Sweet Basil used to be off Sixth Avenue. Yeah. Uh, which isn't called Sixth Avenue anymore. I forget what it's called now. Um, it was a club called Boomers, and it was long hours. I think we started at 10, and we went till 3. But everyone was there. One night, I remember Mingus, um, Cecil McBee, um, a couple of other great bass players. They're all sitting right in the front row staring at me because I'm like the new kid in town, you know. But uh, Mingus at that time had quite a reputation for (laughs) being 
gruff with a lot of musicians, but he was great with me. He befriended me uh, actually several times while I was in New York, and uh, um, so he was he was really gave me a lot of encouragement and hope uh, with my playing at that time in New York. So I came in contact with a lot of great players, and and uh, that was my school. I never went to a, a music school. I learned on the street, the street, the university of the street. Yeah, playing with all these great players, and and uh, remember Al Foster recommended me to Stan Getz. That's how I got that gig with Getz. I'm taking things out of out of, out of chronological order here, but in I think seventy four, seventy five, before I went back to New York, uh, Joe Henderson called me. There was a great bass player named John Hurd who had recommended me. And I joined Joe Henderson's band. And then Joe, uh, of course, we traveled uh, a lot at that time with him. He had Joanne Brackeen on piano. And uh, Ndugu was, uh, Leon Chancellor, a great drummer, was supposed to have the gig. And a local drummer here in Portland, Ronnie Steen, joined us and played uh, with Joe with that band at that time. So it was Joe Ambrakeen, myself, Ronnie Steen, and, and, and uh, yeah, the quartet. So I met a lot of people that way. Um, one year we were guests at the Jamie Eversold Jazz Camp. And uh, at that time I met David Baker. God, I wish I could remember this guitar player's name. He was very good friends with... Um, with David and great guitars, very unique guitars. And so the three of us played a cello, guitar, and bass. Well, I don't know. Do you know who Billy Harper is? Yes. Yeah. Um, this guitarist is very good friends with Billy. And Billy was going to Europe. And this guitarist that played with, with uh, um, David Baker, and you know David Baker, of course, he's the person who organized jazz education. He, that's who Jimmy Eversol studied with. And David yeah. was actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize at one time for his work with jazz and education. He recommended me to Billy Harper. And so I got a call uh, here in Portland, Oregon, from New York, from Billy Harper, who was going to Europe and wanted to know if I would like to come back to New York and, and rehearse and go to Europe. And so I said, yes, of course. And that was my first time in New York. So, like I said, I'd taken these events out of chronological order. So it's a little mixed up, but still things that happened to me. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, and over your career to this point, you've had over 65 CDs as a leader and a co-leader. Actually, it's up to almost, I think it's 78 now. Okay. As a leader, co-leader. And you've been on countless recordings. So my question is this. Over your career... Has there been a real prolific period, one that was more robust and creative than another, or is it just kind of a constant stream of activity? Well, it's kind of all melted into life, just living. There's always a lot of activity. (laughs) 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 I've never had illusions of grandeur. So I've been thankful for everything that has happened. My music did take it turn at one point. You know, it was very important to me personally um, to find out why I was playing music. In fact, it's a question I ask my students now. 
first thing I ask them is, uh, why are you playing? And then what are your musical needs? And then what are your musical goals? And the whole idea of musical goals is to have each student um, uh, set reasonable goals for themselves, obviously, so they don't get discouraged. So in the beginning, I was asking myself that question, why am I playing music? What is this all about? As was very analytical, and and uh, I I went so far as to think I was thinking spiritually because in my conversations with Coltrane I was seeking at that time, and he had been through a lot at that time, and um, had uh, shared with me that he wished he had been more resourceful in his life uh, spiritually uh, as opposed to doing other things in his life uh, which caused bad health for him my priority was I asked myself you know if if there's a God that exists in life then that God created music that God created me and created my desire to play music so I thought, well, my first responsibility then is to find out if there's a God. That would be the source of everything, you know. So I kind of delved into a lot of different um, Eastern philosophies, um, Christianity, um, theosophy, um, a lot of the isms, Shintoism, Buddhism, all those. Finally saw that the epitome of love that existed in life was through the act of forgiveness. That it's very easy to love people when it's easy to love people, but when once you've been violated, offended, now let's see the love, when love should count. So the epitome of love I learned, I learned was uh, through forgiveness. And that concept was best illustrated to me in Christianity, in Christ, um, the concept of Christianity, which he died on the cross as, as paying a price for the inadequacies of my life and sin and all that kind of thing. But not as not in the church structure, not in the concept of Christianity as we know it through the through the churches, although there probably are some very fine churches, but the the world notices the hypocrisy and the theatrics and, and the drama that people impose upon something that's real. And so my my seeking at that time took me in this direction. God, you show me about yourself. I don't want to hear man's opinion about you. I want your opinion about you. So I didn't really read any books uh, because it was those books are filled with intellectualism and, and theological arguments and vanity, and I just wasn't interested in that. But through my seeking that way, through these events, one day in my practice room, because this is like over a period of, well, seeking and looking for about 20 years. I had a coffee house in Portland, Oregon, 
this is another long story. <laughs> there's, a, there's a two article thing in Cadence magazine when it was a magazine that uh, William Minor, great journalist from um, Monterey, California, wrote about me, and it was a two-issue story. And I've talked a lot about my this coffee house that I had at that time in Portland called Sila. And uh, it was a coffee house that was open for um, on Fridays and Saturdays. And then I had puppet shows for kids on Saturday after, uh, Saturday afternoons. And so um, it, it was a, it was a great place. A lot of visiting Charlie Hayden and Jimmy Witherspoon. A lot of visiting musicians would come in there and play when they were in town. So it was open from two in the morning on Fridays and Saturdays till about six or seven. Those were the hours. So it was a place for after hours. People could come and hang and play music. And it was free for everyone. There was no alcohol, so any age could come in. And I had a donation box. That's a long story. I won't go into it now. It's just too long. But uh, it was it was a real blessing. And, and at this time, um, during the days, I would go into the coffee house and practice. And I would write the puppet of show the, the dialogue I was going to use for the for the puppet show that I would give every Saturday for the kids. At this time, it was like I had this vision, and it wasn't a kind of vision where everything outside of me changes. It was within myself. I saw this beautiful pool, which is the name of my publishing company, Color Pool, and it was a pool filled with all these beautiful colors. Up until this time, I had been seeking why am I playing music? What is this all about? It's not enough for me just to have technique and display that and have fun. There's got to be more meaning to this than just that. So then I saw this beautiful pool and I saw the Lord uh, standing by the pool with, with a ladle and he dipped the ladle in and let all these beautiful colors flow out. They, I can't describe the colors because they were spiritual colors. They weren't browns, yellows, reds, blues like we have here in this life. <laughs> they yeah. were spiritual colors. And I really can't tell you, they, they, they were magnificent, amazing, but even that doesn't describe it because I can't describe it. It's just something beyond description. But they, it was very vivid and, and and the event was very lucid at the time. And I said, what is this? He said, this is a pool I've given to you to fill the note. And, and he explained to me that the note was not music. It was the substance that was in the note that would edify, comfort, heal, and give hope to a broken world. He says, I've given you this pool to fill the note. And now I want you to go forth and show the glory of God, not by your power and not for your glory, but for God's glory. So it took all the ego and the claiming that look what I do totally out of my music, totally, yeah. and was given all the glory to the one that created it. And then I knew my purpose, and now I had a purpose for playing music. And I could go forth and live in obedience to what I had just observed. And at the time, I had two, uh, three children. I eventually had four children. Uh, 
My wife gave homeschool, and I was traveling, playing only acoustic bass and playing jazz. It's like walking on water. But I felt, well, this is what I've been called to do. I know why I've been called to do it. I have a foundation on which to stand now that is solid and uh, through my faith. And so I, it was like walking on water, supporting a family, playing jazz on an acoustic bass, not electric bass. At yeah. the time, electric bass was coming in. Everyone told me I'd have to play electric bass, but I was called to play the acoustic instrument. And that's what I was going to play. That's the only reason I got into bass, because the love of the acoustic instrument, unamplified. And that's a whole other story, how I have my homage bass now and why I play it and everything. But that's that was a turning point in my life. So that that was in a van. But the, all my music changed at that time. My music took a left-hand turn. All the music I started composing and playing... Uh, I started playing solo bass concerts. No one was playing. The only person playing solo bass concerts in 1972 was, uh, as I know, it was Bar Phillips. And he he was the first one out there playing jazz, you know, solo jazz, creative jazz concerts. There might have been others, but I think Bar was the first one. And, and, uh, and myself, I started doing that in 72. And so I was kind of a pioneer of of solo bass concerts. I started was performing in 1972. And it was because of this vision and knowing what I was doing, what I was supposed to do, and my music changed and doors opened up. And <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this, because there, there's, there's a lot of things that have kind of been answered and questions that I have, but I got this question for you. What has been one of the greatest jazz shows you've either been involved with or witnessed in your life? Well, I'd have to say one of the momentous was when I went to the Soviet Union. Of course, that was very that was very important. Playing uh, to thousands of people in the Soviet Union and having the response that we did, the humbleness of mind. That was a big event. That was very special. Another very um, special concert was when I was with Billy Harper, and we did the very first recording for Black Saint Records. It was a record called Black Saint, which was Billy Harper. And we played at the Umbria Jazz Festival. I think it was the first one, the first Umbria Jazz Festival in, in, in Umbria in a square. I think there must have been, I think it was like 10,000 people in this square. It was on a square where the Apostle Paul had actually preached. And I was with Billy Harper's quintet at that time. Malcolm Pinson on drums, Joe Bonner on piano, Billy Harper and myself, Virgil Jones on trumpet. We were playing opposite the Count Basie Orchestra and Mingus's group. So these were the three groups. And it was amazing. Um, uh, Billy always gave me a, a spot in the quintet to play a solo, which is a solo bass. So that and then backing up Billy and, and the whole rest of the band. That was very, very, very... I remember that night. It was just incredible. And they had to carry our instruments through the crowd and us we, to get to the stage. It was just mind-boggling. Yeah. And then at, after our set, Mingus came up to me 
and told me, he says, listen, I have a recording date in Rome on Horo Records, H-O-R-O, who is, this company was owned by Aldo Senizio. And uh, he says, I'm not feeling well, and I want you to take my place. And he says, it's with, um, well, Jack Walrath and Danny Richman, uh, George Adams, Don Pullen. Uh, and there was a gypsy acoustic guitarist that joined us on one tune. But we went into the studio in Rome the next day and recorded in a 24-hour period two records. Wow. I was wasted when I came out of, of that studio. Yeah. But uh, so that event, that time, I'd have to cite those, those the the Russian and then that Italian, the Umbria Festival, as two standouts. Yeah. There's been so many, but I would have to say those are two that come to mind. Let me ask you this. You've dedicated your life to jazz. You've created so many good songs and so much music over your career. Why do you love jazz? The the free expression, the silver lining, um, the idea that it offers the musician the chance to improvise and the excitement of following where the music is going without having to be confined to a lot of arrangements, being told how to play. The challenge of listening, the challenge of taking the eyes off ourselves, listening and responding creatively to what we hear. A little bit like uh, extreme skiing. <laughs> Have you ever, <laughs> do you know where they fly to the top of a mountain with a parachute? Oh, and yeah. They come down the mountain not knowing what's coming next. Yeah. Type of thing. That excitement. Like, And I've never skied, but I used to play the ski shows with a great musician called Elmer Gill, and we'd go to all the ski fairs and play, and watching the downhill these skiers come downhill. It was visually kind of the same feeling I had playing the music. So, um, yeah, I guess f for that reason, like a silver lining running through a broken world uh, offers hope, encouragement. It's edifying. It's healing. So, for me. So. Yeah. Well... Speaking of the silver lining, the proverbial silver lining, let me ask you this. I'm, this will be my final question for you. You're far from over, but when you look back on your life that you served in music and making people happy with jazz, what? how do you want the world to remember you and what you've given it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It sounds like I'm going to die here soon. No, 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 no. No, I need to rephrase it, make it, make it more fun. <laughs> I mean, I have my own identity. When I first came in to play jazz, it, the word unique was synonymous with the word jazz. If you're going to play jazz, you're going to be unique, period. There were no jazz schools there. Unfortunately, today, in today's world, uh, it's much more difficult for young musicians to become original or unique because there's so many musicians and also there's so many books and so many musicians are reading students are reading the same book so it's it's more difficult today than when i was coming up when i was coming up like i say just there were no books and you were expected to be unique playing jazz like i say the words it was synonymous with jazz unique so 
I have my own sound. I sound like me, which is neither good or bad, but I have my own sound. And so that's been very important. But I would say at the core, as I would sit in a rocking chair thinking about my contribution, I think the final thought would be the words kindness and mercy would be I hope that that was present in my life as opposed to just being a unique basis or jazz basis that the kindness and mercy transcends through the music and 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 comes into play uh, in a in in people's experience with me. That was the ultimate goal in a broken world. Something yeah. that edifies, comforts, gives hopes. Um, that's what I why I was called to do this in the first place to show forth the glory of the kingdom of God to glorify God, not myself and. At the heart of that is kindness and mercy. You know, uh, I remember being interviewed one time, or not interviewed, but sitting with someone uh, who was uh, <laughs> very excited. They were sitting next to me. He couldn't believe it. Oh, they were a fan of mine, obviously, obviously, because there's more people that don't know me that know me. And uh, I said, "Listen," I says, "Make a big deal, not because." I'm a musician, but the person who has mercy and kindness that shows this towards people, even the people living on the street, this is a person to feel excited to be next to. Not because a person is a great musician or you think he's a great musician, but it's the people that, like uh, Mother Teresa, for instance, and you can show it not only through which uh, Mother Teresa did, but just people living a normal life who clean toilets or whatever. Mercy and kindness is a great attribute. And so that's what I've worked towards and have failed miserably at times, but (laughs) have worked towards this. Uh, This has been my goal. It's just, just like playing the instrument. You know, you make a lot of mistakes and you keep regrouping and and hopefully the the chart is on an upward swing. Yeah. But I would say that. That's a perfect fitting end to uh, my final question in the interview. Hey, David, it was very illuminating and, and pleasurable to speak with you. It was great to get to know you, and I'm looking forward to presenting it to my audience. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for the call, Joe. Thank you, David. Take care. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to David for his profound walk through this life, giving us music and the definition of cool as a part of that Jazz Jedi Council. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can always visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.